All right. Good morning. Well, we're moving through Ezra, and so I was going to read the text first, and then uh, talk to you a little bit more about Ezra, since I know um, Ezra probably requires just a little reminding on uh, on background and exactly who is he and what's he doing, because <laughs> he's not actually one of the names that we hear a lot. But let's go ahead and start with uh, Ezra chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 27 through 8.1. And then I'm going to skip, because there's a lot of genealogy going on there. I'm going to skip to chapter 8, verse 15. So we can start, should all, probably all on the same page for most of your Bibles. But Ezra chapter 7, verse 25. And it says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand... Whoops, that's 25. Sorry. I was like, wait a second. That's actually the end of a letter from a king, right? This is where we just landed is the king, uh, Artaxerxes, has given Ezra authority to go carry out the work of God down in Jerusalem. So he's coming as a scribe, an expert in the law, and he's bringing the law back to Israel and to Jerusalem. So verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me, this is Ezra, his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king. So rather than read through all the genealogies, uh, not that there's nothing to be learned from them, but we're going to skip over that and go right to verse 15. I'm going to read through 20. So that long paragraph there. I gathered them to the river. That is, all the men that went up who were originally from Israel and now have come with Ezra from way off in the Persian Empire where he was amongst Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. I'm having trouble with that name today. Brought him now to Jerusalem, and he says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days as I reviewed the people and the priests. So he's got them all gathered. He's not quite leaving yet. I found there none of the sons of Levi. All right, that's an issue. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elnathan, and Nathan. I almost want to give some nicknames there, don't you? A couple Elnathans and a Nathan. That sounds like it get confusing. Zechariah and Meshulam, leading men. And for Joyarib and Elnathan, really? Who were men of insight. And sent them to Edo the leading man at the place, Casiphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers 
and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely, Shariabiah, and with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also, Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. There were, these are, were all mentioned by name. I find Greek easier than Hebrew, by the way. That's tough. Um, I have a couple questions in my head as I'm reading that. Now, one of them is, how? How did God put such a thing on the heart of the king? Right? Here's this Persian king who we know is in support somehow, for some reason, he is supporting Ezra in the Israelites. How? We know that this is evidence that the good hand of God is on Ezra. We talked about that last week. It came up again in our reading today. Twice it's mentioned. That this is evidence that the good hand of God is on Ezra, that he would use even this pagan king. But how does God bring that about? Is there some background we can know about that that might help us as we look at Ezra try to make sense out of this? Because what we do know from history is that Persian king, he is not a believer. Artaxerxes is not a believer. We have enough history of that era to know that. But I have another question, too, which we'll get to after we answer the first one, which is, why does Ezra care so much about the genealogies? And specifically, why does he care so much about making sure he has some of the sons of Levi with him? But in order to answer the first question, which... How did God put such a thing on the heart of the king? I, I want to just pull up a map real quick to give us a little background. A lot of different names here. Uh, really just want to focus in on over on um, here. Here we got Egypt, right? Right in here is where Jerusalem is, right? It's going to be right over here. These guys are going to come into play shortly over here. We're getting over in the, by Greece, except you won't see Greece written anywhere there. Because how we think of Greece is we kind of think of it all united. It's not all united right now. Athens and Sparta are anything but united over here in Greece. And that actually has a little bit of an impact on Ezra's situation. Uh, over here, let's see, where do we have... Here's Media, here's Persia. This is a Persian king. Usually when we talk about the first Persian empire that we're talking about... We have these two kingdoms combined, Persia and Media. We don't know a ton about these guys, except they were powerful for a while. We know a lot more about these guys, and they just kind of swallow up. These, these two come together, and we start thinking of them just almost as one people. In fact, the Greeks, who grew to hate the Persians, used to say, if you start believing uh, or adopting 
the views of our enemy, you've been Medianized. They actually didn't say Persianized, even though this is clearly the Persian Empire. So we're dealing with a lot of Persian kings right now. Um, I'm going to throw up a timeline in a little bit just to look at the different Persian kings. The only thing I want to put up here is, hey, these pla- this right here, this is the Persian Empire. They're going to spend a lot of time down here fighting Egypt. Egypt never quite gets to supreme power during this era, but they are a threat, and they are constantly trying to break free. Like, who wouldn't if they could, right? So they're a threat. Greece is a threat. And here's Babylon. They're not a threat anymore, but that's kind of the threat that came before the Persian Empire, right? It's the Babylonians who first conquered Jerusalem, right, and and leveled it, and and took all the Israelites out of there. Right? Daniel gets moved out by the Babylonians. The Persians and the Medes, they come in and just take over Babylonia. So they are in power. And it lasts for a while. And the kings can get a little bit confusing. So let me just put up Persian kings. Some of these names you know. Some of them you don't know as well, uh, I'm guessing. So Cyrus, he's the first king of this Persian empire when they take over. He's the one that Daniel prophesied, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah prophesied, that, hey, when we get carried out of Babylon, there's a guy that's going to come along about 70 years later, and he's going to let us all come back. So that's Cyrus. So Cyrus is going to be right around that time, like he's king uh, during um, when all the exiles first come back. His son, uh, Cambyses, we don't hear too much about. He doesn't last that long. Although during this reign, he does conquer Egypt. That's a pretty big deal. Darius, we know a little more about. Darius is the one who is actually, um, let's see, Darius is the king when they rebuild the temple. So the temple is rebuilt in 516. That's under Darius. We see all these big names. Um, think, though, as the Persian Empire that reigns this whole time, there's always threats around it. So that actually when Darius becomes king here, it's not clear that he's the king after Cambyses. There's all sorts of issues going on. In fact, how Cambyses died isn't even clear. It says there's a little mystery around how he died. Well, that sounds shady, right? So what happens when the king of an empire dies and it looks a little shady? Well, all of a sudden, who's the next king? It's all up for grabs. Well, who usually becomes the next king is the guy who's in charge of the army, and that's Darius. So Cambyses is Cyrus' son. Darius is just a general. When he takes over with the army, he is... I'm going to say he's the most powerful king this Persian Empire encounters. He settles it down. That he puts good men, people that trust him, and he trusts the men he's sending out, and he sends them out into the empire so he can get a better idea of where the uprising's coming from. He brings about a lot of reform. Uh, Aramaic becomes the language of this kingdom under Darius that he starts unifying the empire. It is at the height of its strength. Although, by 590, before he 
before he dies, the Greeks are starting to get more powerful. Right? So that Battle of Marathon, that's during Darius's reign. Now, by the time he dies, Xerxes comes along. Xerxes is kind of right in between everything that's covered in Ezra. He's barely mentioned. Where is King Xerxes mentioned? What book of the Bible? Do you remember? Esther. Yeah, he comes up in Esther. But during the time of the rebuilding of the temple, that's actually before him. Think 516 B.C. is when we are guessing that's completed. I mean, we're, we know pretty well, but we're trying to pinpoint a year way back then. Eh, 516, we're right in there. And now when Ezra comes along, it's right here. Well, what's happened? So, so Ezra comes along 458 B.C., the seventh year of Artaxerxes. What's happened since Darius has built this thing up and settled things down? Essentially, just everybody's afraid of Darius. He's in control. You don't rebel against him without pain. By the time Xerxes comes along, he's a little more um, spoiled. <laughs> Essentially, at this point... And he's the king, right, who becomes so famous in that movie. It just comes out, often popular, the uh, 300, you know, the this is Sparta sort of thing. I don't know if you remember that line. (laughs) Big man movie, although I can't say I recommend it. Um, Where's Ben? He's going to be mad at me. Just a little bit shady, or maybe even a lot shady. So it is not being recommended from up here. But that Xerxes, that's, there's a big battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. And in 480 B.C., uh, there's another big one. All right, now, as Xerxes moves along, the whole kingdom gets more and more unsettled. The Persian Empire is showing cracks. Cracks from within because he's so greedy. Darius, they actually thought he's a pretty good guy. He actually shows some fairness. Xerxes was just all about himself. By the time Artaxerxes becomes king, the empire is much more rattled. So that when he becomes king, Egypt, again, who we are saying is always looking to shake off the Persian Empire is thinking, um, hey, we can probably pop free at this point. There's a switch in the the kings. This is our chance. And they also pull in Athens to help them. So Athens is powerful. Not Greece, Athens. Just the city-state. So now Artaxerxes is thinking, what do I do? I'm not sure I can beat Egypt and Athens together. So he gives a bunch of gold to Sparta and says, Sparta, do me a favor. All these Athenians are hanging out in Egypt and they're fighting me in Egypt. You attack Athens. Sparta takes the money and says, hey, I think we hate Athens more than we hate you. We'll take your gold. We'll attack Athens. Athens retreats. Persians put down Egypt when they're just by themselves. So this is Artaxerxes. Just got there, right? He's the big king. So what's he looking to do? What's down in the area of Egypt? Israel. Jerusalem. Hey, I need as many friends as I can get down there. 
Ezra, you seem like a good guy. Do me a favor. I'm going to send you down there. I'm going to empower you. But I need you to be my friend. Now, all Ezra's thinking, right, is I'm looking to glorify the Lord. So you want to send me down there with your support? Okay, I'll take it. And he's going to head down there. But the reason how, how God can do this, isn't it amazing, right? How he pulls all these things together. Because the Persian king, he's just using Israel or the Israelites to advance his kingdom or to stabilize his kingdom. But God's using him in a whole different way, right? That God weaves all of these things together. These kings who look like they are in charge of everything. And God's sovereign over all these movements. By the way, I love seeing how historians put together ancient history. Because sometimes I think, following Jesus, we can think, and we get challenged by it. Like, how can you possibly believe in a historical event like the resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago? For that matter, how can you really believe in anything that happened 2,000 years ago? I mean, really, can we know anything? And when we see historians lay out things that not only happened 2,000 years ago, but 500, 600 years before that, it always gives me a little confidence, too, to say, like, whoa, 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 there's nobody who says we can't know things that happened 2,000 years ago, who are working in the world of academia as historians. This, these, these people teaching this history, they're doing it at all the finest universities. But this is how the Persian king, this is why the Persian king sent in Ezra there. Not a believer, although he probably does have some of that policy that Cyrus and Darius and those kings had before him that Hey, Artaxerxes is thinking, what harm can it do to have your God on my side too? I could use that. You know, he believes in a whole bunch of gods. Go pray for me. But he's also thinking, stabilize the area. Okay, so what are the Israelites thinking? Well, the Israelites are thinking, we know who we are. The Israelites are called to be a kingdom of priests. To the Lord. That's right out of Moses, right? Moses in Exodus 19, 6 says, and he's coming up, right? This is while he's at Sinai, right? They've come out of Egypt, moved through the desert, come to Sinai. Now, they're going to be in the desert for a while now, but he's at Sinai, and he's heard the word of the Lord, and this is a piece of it. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So that's the Lord's message to Moses. Ezra knows what Moses wrote down. Remember, we said Ezra's a big deal. Actually, we don't hear too much about him, but that's because our emphasis on Moses has moved appropriately to Jesus Christ. But Ezra, in some circles, among conservative Jews, is known as second Moses. 
And we said, look, there's something real interesting going on here. By the time Jesus gets on the scene, the law is a big deal in Jerusalem, right? There's all those scribes and Pharisees. How could that be? Because we know when Josiah found the book of the law, back when Israel was still ruling over itself, he found it. It had been lost. He didn't even know what it was at first. Like, who can read this to us? What does it mean? Israel had completely lost sight of Moses and the law. It was probably just some distant memory. They certainly weren't in the law. Ezra comes along and says, hey, the law, this is what was given to us. And here is who we are called to be. We are called to be a kingdom of priests. So why do all those genealogies matter to Ezra? Because this is the holy nation that God called. Ezra knows that's who we are. And there's a very important group among our nation. It's the priests. We've got this temple built. How exactly are we supposed to run it according to the law? How do we serve within the temple according to the law without Levites? Go find Levites. So this is a big deal for Ezra. I have a question, though, that, um, you know, not only comes up in my mind, it comes up in the lives of people outside of the church all the time. And, and the question goes something like this. Really? Does, does God just pick a certain group of people just one race, that's all he did. I mean, one bloodline, that's all he picks. That's all who's included in God's holy nation. That when he speaks to Moses, it's like, you're mine, everybody else isn't. That's the kind of question out there. Like, does that sound fair to you? Does that even make sense to anybody? And I just want to highlight that from the beginning... It was never just about bloodlines, ever. Even when he's talking to Moses, he says, all the world's mine, but you'll be to me a holy nation. So that's Exodus. Does Moses take the people into the promised land, which becomes Israel, right? United Israel? No. Joshua does. What's the very first place Joshua moves the people into? They cross over the Jordan. They conquer one city first, famous. Which one? Jericho. Who's the most famous person in Jericho? Rahab, a prostitute. First thing that this holy nation does. First story we get. This isn't just about bloodlines. Like, we're pulling in Rahab. Here's the interesting thing about Rahab. By the end of chapter 6, she comes on the scene early. By the end of chapter 6, what it says is, the spies went into Jericho. This is before they just level it, right? Burn everything. They, they go in and they save Rahab. Not just Rahab, her whole family. Everybody who's connected to Rahab. This Canaanite 
prostitute. They take her, they save her. And here's what else it says, though, at the end of chapter 6. She comes and lives in Israel. She becomes an Israelite. She is 100% a part of the holy nation. Because you know why we get this story first? Because it was never just about bloodlines. It was never just about bloodlines. And here's the other piece we get. Who's the next person? He gets a whole chapter. It's not heard about as much. So end of chapter 6, Rahab's in. The holy nation. Becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Right? Unbelievable. Not just about bloodlines. And not everybody in those bloodlines is saved either. We all know that, right? Like Judas Iscariot was in those bloodlines. It'd be better if he was never born, right? He's gone to where he belongs. But we don't have to wait for Judas to understand it wasn't just about bloodlines. It was about faithfulness within those bloodlines, even from the very beginning. Because in chapter 7, Achan comes. Who's Achan? Do you remember Achan? How many of you have even heard of Achan? That's good. How many of you have never heard of Achan? No shame. No problem. I get it. I remember seeing a reference to Achan in the Valley of Achor where he was killed. And I'm thinking, what is the Valley of Achor? This actually means something to somebody. What is it? It's where Achan is killed. Here's what Achan is put to death for. And not just Achan. He's like the exact opposite of what happens to Rahab. Not just Achan. Achan in his whole family. Woof. That's rough, right? That's a lot. What's that? That's a picture of judgment. Right? That's the wrath of God. Here's what Achan was punished for. He was part of the holy nation. Jericho was not. Jericho just wasn't killed randomly, annihilated randomly. They were being judged for their rebellion against the Lord that had been going on for years. It wasn't that all was lost. All they had to do was repent. Rahab repents. They're saved. The ones who don't, wiped out. Achan, as he's going into Jericho, he sees, whoa, there's some wealth around here. He sees a nice robe. He sees some silver and gold. But here was the message that was given to Joshua and all the Israelites. Don't touch anything in Jericho. It has been set apart for destruction, devoted to the Lord for destruction. Don't grab it. Achan grabs it. As soon as he grabs at that kingdom, right? He's in the holy nation, the holy kingdom, the kingdom of God. He's here. Stay faithful. You stay in it. He grabs after something outside of the holy nation. Now who is Achan? Who does Achan belong to now? Right out of that holy nation. In fact, what God tells Joshua is, go find that guy. If you want to save everybody, because how did Joshua know it was a problem? All of a sudden, he's losing battles. <laughs> His people are dying. Oh, yeah, and you'll continue to die until you get rid of this. That this person grabbed after something outside of God's kingdom. Boy, it doesn't take too big a stretch to relate to that, does it? I mean, the message is this. 
Don't mix kingdoms. Keep it pure. Keep it holy. That it's not just the Israelites who were called a holy nation. It was never just about bloodlines. It was stay faithful within this. Does that mean the bloodlines had no value? Oh, no, no, no. When Jesus, in John chapter 4, is talking to the Samaritan woman, and she starts talking about how they worship and where they worship, do you remember what he says? Jesus says to the woman who's a Samaritan, right? We see the Samaritans come up in this story too. He says, uh, hey, um, and he loves the woman, right? He served her, he's helping her, and he says this, you worship who you don't know. We worship who we do know. Oh, we? Who's Jesus now? He's not just talking about himself right as the word of God who's existed for all time. We worship who we do know. We, Jesus, in his humanity, a son of Judah, right? A Hebrew, one of the ones who received this law straight from God. Oh, what was given to Moses and to that nation? Infinite value. When Rahab takes this step, she comes into this camp. She's an Israelite. She begins to know and understand who the Lord really is. Rahab comes to know the Lord. There was great value in what came in through Moses. And there's great value, even greater, of what we've received through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. That what we read in 1 Peter that we just went through, right? 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race. Who's Peter writing to? Believers that are scattered all over Asia Minor. Not just Jews, Jews, Gentiles. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. Well, that sounds similar. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. They belong to him. That almost sounds like devoted. That, that, there's, forget it, we won't get into that right now. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That in Christ, clearly, we have been chosen. This isn't the only place it says it. That what we read in Colossians is that as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's what we're called. But the message is the same. Over and over, Paul warns us. We see throughout the New Testament the same warning that was given to the Israelites. Keep it pure. Don't mix kingdoms. There's deadly consequences. I'm not saying we bounce in and out of salvation based on every choice, moment by moment. I wouldn't even try to guess exactly what's going on. I want to take this one message. Keep it pure. We have an opportunity to be Achan. If we grab after things that are outside his kingdom, we are at risk. The only evidence that we believe is what we say and do. We're fruit inspectors, right? 
Who can know a man's heart? Well, I don't know. I guess ultimately nobody, right? Just the Lord. But Jesus does say, look at the trees, right? Good fruit comes from a good tree. Bad fruit comes from a bad tree. Well, that's pretty simple. We all get that. So here's the message. All the temptations I have to bear just a little bad fruit, oh, be afraid. Fear God. Turn back to him. Keep it pure. Is all lost when I realize I grabbed after something from Jericho that wasn't mine? No, all's not lost. But I better get my Rahab on real fast. Turn back to the Lord. Turn away from the prostitution. Turn away from Jericho. First John says, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. Purify us from all unrighteousness. We just keep it pure. If there's a need to repent today, oh, don't even hesitate. Even if you think, I, I can't even imagine what would happen if I let go of this. I don't even know how to, how to. Just take the next step that he's calling us to take. Right? That's all we need to do. What did Rahab do? What did Rahab really know when the spies came into Jericho? I was talking to Claude about this yesterday. The only thing we know she did is hide them. That's it. There's like no sinner's prayer. There's nothing. She just hid them. It's like all she knew was, I'm pretty sure. I see what's going on. I hear what the Lord's doing. I better get on his side. What does getting on his side mean right now? Hide these spies. I'm with him. That was just taking a step. Oh, I'm sure she had to take many, many more. And she moved into the Israelite camp. I'm sure she learned all about the sacrificial system and the law and had to obey everything moment by moment, just like we do, right? That we don't just teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded. <laughs> We're like Ezra. Remember what we talked about last week? We study it. We obey it. And then we teach it. As he leads. Oh, keep it pure. I love you guys. I hope you love me. Let's just make sure we don't get comfortable grabbing after anything from Jericho or even watching our buddies grab after anything from Jericho. I'm not saying confront everybody on everything right away. <laughs> There's a timing thing. But well, we can all at least land on this, right? Keep it pure. Don't mix kingdoms. Don't play Aiken. Keep it pure. If he's calling us to take a step, like Rahab, let's just take a step. In Christ, we are a holy nation. Not in the U.S. <laughs> in Christ, we are a holy nation. There's still some holiness in the U.S. I'm lost hope. Our hope's in Christ. Let's keep it pure. In Jesus' name, amen.